failure is the key to success. You can't go out thinking that everything you're going to do is going to be flawless and amazing and game changing. I might always admit when something's going wrong or not as expected, or you made a mistake, or you don't know something, just just like be as forthcoming as you can. If you are trying to act like everything is totally under control and it's all good and you try to cover things up or wait until it's a crisis. Like, ugh, no, it's like, it's way better to just be like, I don't know what's going on. Or I sense something sort of going awry here. This is just not adding up. Can someone please help me figure this out? That's the way better way to prevent crisis versus setting yourself up for crisis intervention, which could be a lot more uncomfortable. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Hey, this is Sid Finkelstein, and this is the Sidcast, episode number 116. My guest today is Lucy Lieberman, who is the CEO of Tablet Hotels. I've been a big fan of Tablet Hotels long before I knew Lucy was a part of this company. If you don't know Tablet, they're basically they're a travel agency online that you look up wherever you want to go and they have a list of curated hotels. Now, there's a ton of ways to find hotels, right? You just Google where you're going and then write hotels. You can go to TripAdvisor. There's Orbitz and Expedia and Kayak. There are a lot of places. Tablet is a little bit different because they only list a small number of hotels in every location, and each one is personally or professionally curated by them. These are higher-end hotels, not always the most expensive hotels, but ones that have interesting design elements, some classic beauty. They could be particularly cool or happening. It's got an interesting vibe for what they select. And you kind of know that if you end up staying in one of those hotels, you're going to have a high-end experience, not necessarily super expensive again. And they vary. They have a really good explanation or description of each uh, hotel on their website, And they have reviews and they have various ratings as well. And the idea is that you'll go to them, you'll find the place you want to stay and you click and they will make a commission. And that's how they create the business. It's been around for, I don't know, a couple of decades by now. But if you're in the hotel business, in the travel business, and here we are in 2021, you got a problem, don't you? You got a gigantic problem operating the world of covid And actually think about 2020 and what that was like, how business completely dropped off the map for everyone in the travel business. 2021, picking up here and there and maybe picking up a lot as we are into the end of the year now, but not quite what it was before. And so there's a lot to talk to Lucy about. I didn't realize, I don't know, I came across this somehow, that Lucy Lieberman, one of my former students, became the CEO of the company actually the beginning of this year, 2021. Talk about a time to become CEO of a company, right? And so I thought, well, let me get back in touch. And it was great because I get a lot of joy out of seeing the successes of my students. And success doesn't just mean, you know, making a lot of money. In fact, that's beside the point. It's having an impact and uh, having a chance to have an impact. And of course, being the CEO of a company is a really good way to do that. Plus, you know, if you're running a hotel company or a travel agency that sells space in hotels, you have some interesting challenges because Airbnb and VRBO and, and many, many others have really taken off in the COVID era. And we talk about that as well. I mean, how do you compete? How do you make that happen? And we talk about, you know, the psychology of travel. Who's ready to go traveling? We've been very, very conservative uh, in my case. 
in terms of travel, very little. I know it's going to pick up in 2022. I used to travel like crazy for work, for giving lots and lots of speeches and workshops and consulting and research and lots and lots of other things. But now that we've gone through what we've gone through for you know 18 plus months and counting, I know I'm not going to go back to that same pace. But that doesn't mean that the beauty of travel disappears and of discovering new places and experiencing life through the eyes of others. And that's important. That's something that is part of our personal growth and personal enjoyment. And I don't know about you, but it used to be the case that, you know, you go to a place and you want to say, well, I got to go to the Louvre and got to see Montmartre and got to go to Sacré-Cœur and see Notre Dame. And uh, all those places are pretty amazing in Paris, obviously. But for quite a while now, my philosophy has been quite different. I'll see what I see in terms of the famous places. Of course, I'll go out of my way to see a special museum exhibit that might only be there at the time that I'm in a particular place. But I much rather just kind of walk around and experience. In French, there's a word called flaneur that describes it. Uh, Flaneur is someone who, almost like you're empathizing with the people that live there. You're immersing yourself. You're not part of them. You are different, but you're still immersing yourself into their world and trying to experience it in the way that they do. And that's one of the most beautiful things about travel. And I hope that I'll be able to get back to some of that in 2022 and 2023 and onward. But as I said, not at the same pace. So back to tablet, Michelin acquired tablet at the end of 2018. And Michelin is, as you know, the tire company, right? Michelin tires. And Michelin is also the same company that has the Michelin guide for restaurants very high-end restaurants, and they sign Michelin stars. And it's very interesting to think about how Michelin is integrating tablet and how tablet is being integrated into Michelin. And it's kind of a natural match. And we talk about that with Lucy as well. Lucy's really a pleasure to talk to. She's very thoughtful. She's very smart. And she's another person who's crafted a career through many years and many interesting experiences. Lucy was there at the founding of the internet, developing some of the first websites and dot-coms. And she ended up with as deep an expertise in marketing in the modern era as anyone I've ever met. 20 plus years experience in branding and product marketing, in product management and in ops operations. She's launched digital advertising services, led global marketing programs, built and managed cross-functional teams at big integrated agencies digital and media agencies, and startups. She has kind of a who's who of experience when it comes to marketing. She's an expert in marketing strategy, in tech, customer loyalty, advertising, audience development, customer engagement, all kinds of digital marketing. And she has worked in many sectors before becoming the CEO of Tablet with experience in you know retail and tech and travel and hospitality, luxury, lifestyle, even finance and entertainment. It's as wide and deep a skill set as you're going to get. And in fact, probably accounts for why when she first joined Tablet, two years before she became CEO, she joined as the chief marketing officer and then got the tap on the shoulder to move up. So we'll talk about all that and much, much more with Lucy Lieberman. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is a former student, Lucy Lieberman. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Sid. It's great to have you on the show. And as I said in my introduction, you are the CEO of Tablet Hotels. I have been a long time, I don't know how long time, but long enough time customer, though, frankly, not in the last uh, two years, along with everyone else. How are you holding up in the era of running a travel business in a pandemic? That's a great question. It has definitely been interesting and it's definitely been very different than what I imagined when I first joined Tablet in the first half of 2019. So I had only been in the role for seven months before we started to actually see the initial signs of the pandemic. We're a 
global boutique online travel agency. I joined right after Michelin had acquired the company and our plan. And that's was- Michelin food guide and the legendary curator of high-end restaurants around the world. Yeah. So we're part of the same group that includes the renowned Michelin guide, as well as a couple other businesses. Robert Parker Wine Advocate is also part of Michelin. Ah, I didn't know that. Interesting. A couple other businesses in there. And unbeknownst to many people, the Michelin guide is part of the Michelin group, which is the global tire conglomerate. This is a bit of a side note. I want to get back to the main question, but how did that ever happen? Was it that, you know, the Michelin family were big foodies and they said, let's just do this little thing. Let's give it to one of the cousins to work out. It is the best brand marketing concept of all time. They were essentially needing to create guides for people that were going to buy tires over a hundred years ago. So if you were a lucky enough person to need a set of tires and have a vehicle to drive around France in particular, you needed to know where you could stop and get gas, where you could eat. You were really timing your trip around what the stops were along the way. That's so fantastic. to basically drive tire usage, they created this guide and it's lived on as this incredibly respected and all be all where to go, particularly in Europe. It's much newer in the U.S., but it's on a path to really be this standard on how you can travel the world, where you should go, where it's really going to be worth your time and deliver a memorable experience. The Michelin Guide is about food only, or does it actually include hotels as well? It varied by region. So some regions included hotel listings, but they were really about giving you a place that was good and convenient for you to actually go out and dine in one of the Michelin-rated or Michelin-starred restaurants. In the U.S., there was no hotel selection. In some other regions, there was not a hotel selection. So the acquisition of Tablet really led to this convergence of that existing hotel selection, Tablet's hotel selection, elevating the selection to a real set of standards that's on par with the restaurant selection. And over the last year, we've really worked on figuring out how to set up the infrastructure and then roll out global hotel selection to accompany the restaurant. So, okay, we're going to get back to the pandemic, but now you've really intrigued me since for years I've worked on acquisitions and synergies and taught that and worked with companies on that. And more often than not, that synergy word is a make-believe word, but it actually sounds like there's something here that's really interesting. So is it that the tablet expertise will have a different distribution channel through Michelin? Is it going to run as two separate paths? How do they actually, and how will they work together? It's going to continually align. So today, and we're really proud of this, today you can download a Michelin Guide global iOS or Android app. The tablet team set up the whole infrastructure for that and worked with the Michelin Guide restaurant team to pull in all the restaurant content. And this provides users one app, global, multiple languages that lets you access all of the restaurant listings all around the world and the entire tablet hotel selection around the world. And in addition, there's transactional capabilities as well. So on the restaurant side, we've done some integrations with Resi, OpenTable, a service called La Fourchette, which is like the French Resi, mm-hmm. so that you can book a table at a restaurant 
that's in the guide. And on the hotel side, you have the full booking experience. So you can look through the selection, find your hotel, look at rooms and rates and dates, check out and be on your way. The websites are still separate right now. So there's a Tablet Hotels website that is exclusively hotels. The Michelin Guide restaurant, by the time this comes out, will have a hotel search on it. When you find the hotels you're interested in, you'll link over to the Tablet Hotels site to finish checkout. We have plans to bring that ecosystem together in a more seamlessly integrated way as we venture forth. Yeah, very interesting. So it really was a natural acquisition. And it happened, was it the end of 2018 or, yes. or 2019? It was the end of 20, it was like December, I think, 2018. And you started 2019. So you knew that was Michelin, that was the parent firm yep. you started. And you came in as a CMO, the chief marketing officer. Yep. Did you have a conversation or were there any expectations that you would be next in line <laughs> or that there was a plan, actually a succession plan in place for you to be CEO? I did not know, but... Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I did find out later on that the CEO, Laurent, had told a couple of people when I was interviewing to think about how they would feel about me in a bigger role at some point. So I didn't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. And the CEO and the other co-founder had started the company in 2000 and had been running it as a bootstrap startup the whole time. So it wasn't really that either of them would be done with this and want yeah. to move on. And the other co-founder, Michael, is now the chief product officer for the Michelin Experiences group, which is this group that includes Tablet, the Michelin Guide, Robert Parker, etc., so he's expanded his role to really steer towards a vision around how the Michelin Guide can be this incredible B2C brand globally in a digital era. Right. So it's always interesting when the knock on the door comes and say, well, Ms. Lieberman, you know, we'd like you to run this entire company, to be the CEO. And you no doubt remember the day that conversation came to you. Could you describe what it was like and what happened? Yeah. Well, this was in October 2020. So deep pandemic. We'd sort of seen a little bit of positivity over the summer. And then by October, it was really starting to shut down again. And Laurent was about to take a week off. I think he was going on vacation. And he called me on my mobile phone. And I was sort of surprised to hear from him. And he's just like, I just have a quick thing to tell you before I go on vacation. And it's that I'm leaving. <laughs> oh, just by the way, I'm leaving. <laughs> this little thing. And that he and Michael had made a recommendation to Michelin that I should be the CEO. And he wanted to know if that was interesting to me. <laughs> so he sort of left it as a, I'll go on vacation, then we'll come back and we'll sort it out. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's a moment. I mean, even when I initially got the job offer, when you get any job offer, you think about, could I even do this? Is this insane? Or is this like completely common sense? And there's not even anything to question about it. I think, you know, in any opportunity, you waffle between, am I even remotely capable to, of course, I'm like beyond like, this is, it would be ridiculous to not seize this opportunity right. and kill it. Right. But there's some questioning. The way you just described that is very interesting because there are, and this is definitely a stereotype, but back with a lot of research, the difference between men and women and how they react to these things, right? 
the majority of men wouldn't have any such doubts. Or if they did, they would stamp them down and they just wouldn't. I always say women are more thoughtful and therefore they think about these things and therefore they sometimes lose opportunities when they convey incorrectly, but they convey that they actually don't want that. They don't want to move up. They don't want that big opportunity or they don't think they're really, really ready just by being thoughtful. It's ironic and crazy, but it's very common. And maybe you've seen it. You know, people can't see it. You're nodding your head. So you understand that. Yeah. That phenomenon very well. I do. It's like, I hate to admit it, but I think it's real. I've seen it in so many different ways. It's like, how do you describe it? At Ogilvy, where I spent 10 years. So this is Ogilvy is one of these giant advertising and communications agencies. I joined... Shortly after Shelly Lazarus, who had been the CEO for a whole reign, she had stepped aside to be on the board. But she was this frequent personality around Ogilvy. She would always come and do speeches. She would come and talk to women who were on a path to leadership. She's incredible. And I love her stories about advertising in the 70s and 80s. But she had a whole thing about always saying yes. That was sort of her key message Mm. is always say yes, no matter how insane it is, and then figure out how to do it afterwards. So she just really took that to heart. I think she lived by it. I think she inspired a lot of people by that. And I think that's kind of maybe just the natural thing for guys working their way up the ladder versus women. Women are, I hate to stereotype, but I think women are more reasonable (laughs) (laughs) and and they're they're thinking about the greater good or they're thinking about the realities and if you are thinking about the greater good you have a lot of humbleness about what you can really drive and what you can really impact what you're really capable of yeah this is a a really important point because it comes up with our students our mba students now a lot and maybe it did you know when you were doing your own uh, mba but it's come up in my class more and more like one of the things i did in in my class when it was a zoom class which it isn't anymore but when it was my elective was on strategic leadership i'm not sure if that was the one you took or the other course but in any event it's changed a lot over Actually, I don't think I even called it that. (laughs) That's a newer name. But in any event, because we weren't meeting in person, one of the things I did is created opportunity for students to write blog posts that they would share and comment on each other pretty regularly, at least once or twice a week. And one of them was because almost all the students were about to graduate. This was spring term. So spring, March, April 2020, 2021, maybe both times. And one of the blog post topics was, what are you worried about as you launch into your career? And of course, there was a lot about working from home and building relationships with people in that type of environment. Certainly much more severe in spring of 2020 than spring of 2021 when we started to think we're going to be okay. Right, right. Uh, right. (laughs) Which we will. But the idea of imposter syndrome came up a lot. And I didn't see that. I didn't say anything about that. And it was almost all women and minority students that brought it up. And I had to comment on it in the blogs just to point out, pay attention who's talking about this and why that is. And people were providing, I don't really support to each other in a classic tuck way, men and women, on how to deal with it and how to think about it. But it was such a big thing. And as you know, the people that go to top MBA programs are really pretty talented. They are very, very capable. But yet these are the same people that were experiencing imposter syndrome. Yeah, not only is it very real, but talking about your own experience as someone who's you know, experienced and successful and has made it to CEO of a company is actually quite powerful. So thank you for that. 
<laughs> uh, it's kind of amazing, though. I mean, I don't know if anything I just said surprised you. Probably not. We have a generation of millennials and now Gen Z that are extremely capable and confident and have very high expectations. But yet this kind of psychological thing, this is one student described it. She said, it's like there's this little voice in my head that just brings up these doubts out of this. They just pop in and I can't control it. And it could be in the middle of a meeting and it could throw me for a loop and I just have to control it. I have to manage it. Yeah. I think when you see different leaders, different managers in action, and especially when you're not talking to the top people, you can see that some people are really focused on themselves first and where they're going and what they're about. And that can be a real driving force for a lot of people. They're like, am I coming across right? Do I sound smart? Am I firm and giving clear direction? And mm-hmm. am I sort of looking like a Harvard Business Review case study? <laughs> and then I think there are other people that are really thinking about where the team or where the company are going. What's the vision? What are the obstacles? What's the path or various paths to get to where we want to go? And they're curious and they respect the people they've surrounded them with. And they're trying to solve a problem versus the first personality, which I described, which is trying to get promoted or get recognition. And I see both genders play those two different roles. But when I think about the person that plays that role, I think of a guy. I think (laughs) of like, oh, I just think it's a more natural state for males to live in. And I think it's really good that there's sort of this awareness now of Mm -hmm. paying attention to your own biases. If you're gravitating towards people that look and sound like you, that have a similar background to you, that you're just conscious of that. But it takes all sides and it takes actual thinking, not just acting like it looked like you're doing the right thing. I feel like there's a lot of still acting going on right now on all kinds of things. And some of the acting is good because it actually pulls people over to a new way of thinking. But you have to be careful with all the acting. Because if someone was going to go around and say, like, I'm going to only hire diverse people. I'm only going to hire female people. I'm only going to hire minorities. That can be applauded in some ways. And it's also punitive in other ways. So it's hard to make sure that you're really sponsoring a meritocracy while still making sure that you're giving opportunities to people that just don't come from as supportive of a background or a background with as much opportunity. And sometimes when you find those people, the upside is dramatic for them, which means for you and everyone else that's around them. The impact on their lives, but also what they could do on the job is really kind of impressive. That's why I've always been a big fan of universities trying to bring in more students that are first generation college. They're often from, you know, poor socioeconomic backgrounds, but not always, more likely than not. And it's just a fantastic thing that those numbers are being tracked by places like Dartmouth and other schools now much more closely than they ever were before. And it's still a small number because, you know, universities still have legacy systems, most of them. Mm -hmm. It's starting to be a bit of a break in that. I think it may have been Amherst that announced they were not going to accept any more legacy admits, which is a gigantic thing from a university point of view because that's where a lot of money comes in, right, through donations. So it's a little, I mean, that's either brave or foolhardy, depending on how you look at it. But in any event, you know, creating opportunities for people that have not had those opportunities but that have the raw talent, they might need a little bit more coaching here and there is fantastic. It's also, by the way, one of the reasons why ex-military vets that come into business school Mm -hmm. uh, do so well. Very few of them have ever done much with a spreadsheet, but it turns out what they have done is the highest level of leadership that most people will never deal with and hopefully will never have to deal with. 
And that literal trial by fire Mm -hmm. gives them such a perspective and typically tremendous empathy and understanding of consequences. And that's what leadership is, right? Uh, You could teach a lot of nuts and bolts to people. Smart enough people are going to figure out what they need to know in terms of spreadsheet modeling and other stuff, or just hire smart people that could do it for them. But you cannot outsource leadership. You cannot outsource vision. You cannot outsource the power of the individual to be able to energize people around you. That's so true. It's totally not as life or death as military service. But in the late 90s, I had my first management job. And I was in a dot-com agency Mm. and it was when dot-com was brand new and nobody knew how to code anything. And people were not even familiar with the internet or web browsers. Most people didn't have email. There were very few mobile phones. And I had to hire a team of people that could work with brands and build their very first websites or very first e-commerce sites. And the whole hiring process was around finding personalities and specific traits around curiosity and ability to learn and ability to grasp new concepts and to be able to translate between technology people, clients and brands and creative people and think in terms of systems versus in terms of a product. And we were a small agency. We were competing to against big agencies like Ogilvy at the time. I remember kept poaching people from us. We were hiring people from all kinds of disciplines who had never even had a laptop and then having them show up on the first day and being like, okay, we're going to teach you how this internet thing works Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. you can go invent the future of the internet right now. And that was a great exercise in just interviewing for capability and personality than for a resume that has a bunch of skills that you're specifically looking for. I've taken that through. I've always Mm. just been focused on who are you really about as a person and what do you want to conquer and figure out what sort of gets you excited versus what's your own personal ambitions. Yeah. So you do hire that way and have hired that way. Um, Yeah. Long after the dot-com boom. Yep. Uh, that was pre.com boom. That was, that was on, the, that on the way up. <laughs> on the way up. I was going to ask you about that later, but you brought it up. So I'll ask you real quick now what that world was like, because most people listening will have no clue. So, I mean, some were there, but uh-huh. you were there in the kind of creation of the Internet machine, yeah. not the technology side, but the business side. And I mean, could you ever have imagined that it would become anything close to what has happened? What were you thinking of? What were you and your colleagues thinking of that was possible back in those days? I do remember trying to explain what I was doing to my parents and being like, mm. I think this like this thing is going to change everything. It's going to be huge. And they were like, that's nice. Like, I just thought like, it was. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> that's good. We're glad you have a job. You know, it reminds me of college. I had a friend whose father was an engineer and who had a computer, which was even in college, a lot of people didn't have computers. I had a word processor in college. I don't even did you? Do they make those anymore? I talk about I talk about Wang Labs word processing in some of my uh, speeches, which goes back a little bit. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Now we have Microsoft Word that does about a million times more than any of those entire machines that were word processing did. But anyways, go ahead. <laughs> okay. So uh, this friend in college, he had a computer and he had a CompuServe account, which was like a novelty oh, yeah, at I'm... the time. And he was like, oh, I could dial into this thing and I could talk to other people about stuff. And I was like, that's insane. Why would you want why, to talk to strangers? Why would you want to do that? <laughs> 
And then, you know, four years later, maybe, I was like, oh, this internet thing, this is a real thing. And it's going to change how people communicate, interact with each other. One of the first applications that I was really fascinated by was out of MIT. It was a music rating system. And it started out as an email program. You would email to this bot. I don't think we even called it a bot at the time. You would email to the bot a list of bands that you liked. And next to each band, you would put a score of how much you liked the band. And then the bot would take your inputs and then come back with a new list of bands. And then you would rate those and send it back. And it was basically doing the original version of collaborative filtering, where it was taking data from a lot of different people and then finding patterns among them to figure out, well, what might be stuff that you might want to check out based off of other people who are demonstrating similar taste attributes. So if I think back to what my first experience with digital social communications, it was all around taste making and steering you towards things that you might like. The whole process of discovery that's enabled by data and algorithms. And just like the side note is like, oh, I just love that today I'm in an industry that's all about taste. It's all about how do you discover the best places to go around the world? All right, let's take all that algorithm stuff, but then also take humans and their ability to understand things at a whole other level and bring those together into a whole travel yeah. and restaurant service that makes your life better. So you could actually see, I don't know if it's a straight line, has some bumps in there, but a line from those days to what we were learning, people were experimenting with, to kind of the way the world works today and what you do. In so. retrospect, sure. Yes. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> at the right. time, yeah, well, you and me both would be uh, sitting here on our billion-dollar yacht if we knew what was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Like, had I only bought Apple when I noticed it was fifteen dollars a share in the mid nineties? Yes, exactly. But no, right. <laughs> always go that way. Yes. You know, you remind me also when I was in the PhD program at Columbia in the mid nineteen eighties, we had something called Bitnet which was just starting and it was based on mainframes, but then you had a dumb terminal, which actually came pretty quickly in IBM PC, the first, first version of it. And you were able to, through dial-up, send a message, not real time, but send a message to some university, not a name of a person. There's a thousand universities that were part of this. Mm -hmm. And I remember looking it up with one of my friends and said, oh, Moscow State University, let's send them a message. This is 1985. I don't know whether it message we received or not. But I thought, wow, that's kind of fun. It's gimmicky. That's interesting. And I that's had zero foresight on what that could mean. I mean, not even a fraction of a fraction of understanding what the potential of that very ability to do that at a rudimentary level, what it could mean. Yeah, I, same thing with my CompuServe friend. I also spent a semester in Paris when I was an undergrad. And all over France, they had Minitel, which... Right. was like, a, you know, this device is sat in your kitchen and you can look up things or get, I didn't even understand what it was. And not, well, I didn't have one because I was just a student <laughs> living in a rental somewhere. But yeah, it's something clicked during that first job. I had been doing CD-ROMs, like that was the medium, CD-ROMs and floppy disks for getting tools and branded experiences out to people. And the web was emerging as just a new channel to connect with people. So I remember pitching and then getting assigned to work on building the first website for Kellogg's for the cereal company. And it was like, what does Kellogg's need to be on the web for? And it was this great scene where 
we were like, well, the only people on the web right now are students. Students were sort of the first people who had internet access through schools and had computers to actually look at the internet. And so Kellogg's had a real situation where they realized that they were losing college students because their cereals were priced at a premium versus generic brands. Mm -hmm. So you'd grow up with Kellogg's, you would love Rice Krispies, and everything would be great. And then you'd pack off to college and you'd go to the store to buy your Rice Krispies and you would see right next to it, like generic rice puffs for (laughs) half the price. Mm -hmm. And so they were having this real brand loyalty drop that then they felt impacted future sales when that Mm -hmm. person did start to have income and have a family. They were having an inordinate level of effort to bring them back to the brand. And so they thought that they could use the web to keep people close to the brand so that they wouldn't have that dropout. So there's like an original case study of why you would choose a specific channel to target a specific audience to achieve a specific business outcome. And I mean, we did it in this really fun, outrageous, kind of ironic, tongue-in-cheek way that the legal people at Kellogg's were losing their minds over. (laughs) I don't Uh, think that part has changed, not about Kellogg, but in general. And it was using their characters and they're like, but isn't this, you know, we got into a whole thing around privacy and were we actually targeting children versus 18 years and up? I was on a panel with the FCC to actually talk about privacy in the internet and what regulations companies were putting in place to protect privacy. It was totally all new, wild west. No one knew where it was headed. It's Mm -hmm. amazing to see Facebook getting the same scrutiny that we were getting back in 95 around efforts you're taking to protect privacy and not exploiting people's data and people's interests. I mean, those things that you just described that you were dealing with are exactly in the news right now and have been, they've been top of mind issues. I want to switch gears just for a minute because you've said something funny about, you know, this internet thing and you told your parents and they didn't follow it. Well, my parents had no clue what I was doing either for my research, but at least you were more in the real world. So, but I want to ask you when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? (laughs) You ask people that and say, oh, I want to be a fireman. I would have said I wanted to be a hockey player course that definitely didn't happen but what about you i went through a few different phases but i ended up at a point where i had no idea as a kid i was really into math and science and art i was a little bit sporty like i was all over the place and i was definitely like a little nerd kid like (laughs) not cool at all and i was shy kind of stuck to my own thing. I really wanted to do well in school and I wanted to, you know, make everybody happy. When I applied to college, I actually applied at different schools with different majors for my Georgetown application. I was like, I'm going to be a chemistry math double major. That would be awesome. I think to other schools, I was like, I'm going to be a some other major. I don't even remember, but I remember having a different major for every school I applied to. And then I got into all of them, which was cool. And I chose Georgetown because I wanted to have the full-on college experience, but still be in a city, which Georgetown Mm -hmm. actually has a great combo of. But a week into school, after going to one chemistry lab and sort of seeing who else was in the chemistry program or the math program, and I was like, this is totally not my scene. I do not want to be a scientist, but I have no idea what I want to do. So I actually went undeclared for two years and spent 
a lot of time just taking all the core classes and trying out a lot of mm -hmm. other stuff. Mm -hmm. And much to my parents' dismay, I decided I wanted to be a studio art major at Georgetown, which makes no sense. I think Patrick Ewing is the most renowned studio art major uh, of Georgetown. The, the famous history. basketball player. So did you do that actually? So I did. And then because I had also taken French classes and then I studied in Paris, I was able to like tack in a second major in French literature. So I had this glamorous studio art and French literature double major. Nice. So it, it sounded like you should have moved to France and just kind of hung out at the cafes and sure. did the art scene. But instead, you got into the Internet. I did. I think that was just like this perfect set of circumstances. I'm sure there are things that are like less packed full of skills than a French and art major. But it was ridiculous. I was working in art museums and I was teaching SAT classes on the side. I was teaching SAT math classes. I'm working in art museums. <laughs> the studio art major is teaching SAT math. <laughs> yeah, I was really good at SATs and math in general. And it paid well. I was working for the Princeton Review. Right. It was one of the like the best hourly rates right. you could get as a kid. And I was like, I had to get a real job. It was a total recession then, too. This was in 1992. There were, like, no jobs mm -hmm. out there. The class that had graduated before me had still not gotten jobs. Things were pretty dire. So having, like, a couple part-time jobs was pretty good. And then I found this company that was doing mostly architectural and graphic design, mostly for the restaurant and entertainment space. And they were just getting into digital media and they needed like a receptionist. So I was like, I could do that job. There's a whole path there where I didn't get the job originally. And then they hired somebody and then fired them a couple of weeks later and then reposted the job. And they hired me on a trial basis. And then after a week, they promoted me to another role. So there was a little bit of persistence there that paid off. And then that was the whole move. Like, oh, this is an industry where your artistic skills and sensibility and your math and logic and science sensibility actually all come together and are required. Yeah. You kind of had the, as it turns out, a really good profile for that world at that time. Yeah. And did you fall into really marketing pretty quickly? Because when you look at the things you've done, and I want to ask you how you ended up having as many different jobs as you have had in your career, which is, let's say, unusual. Well, let me just ask you that right now. I don't know what the number is. When you look on LinkedIn, there's quite a few. Well, it was the 90s and it was a lot of startups. So I think a lot happened in the 90s and the aughts. And I was not working at like a big legacy company that you would yeah. go and yeah. land at and have a career at. Again, in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. I worked at hmm. one digital agency and then I wanted to move to New York. And so I found one of the best, coolest digital agencies in New York and went there, got there and it was insane. There was no way that agency was going to stay in business. So after four months, I finished two massive projects. One was launching the first e-commerce site for FAO Schwartz, which is the wow. toy store. And then another was building a global intranet for Price Waterhouse. Two totally radically different projects for Price Waterhouse to publish documents and publications internally amongst their teams. But I was like, there's no way this company is going to stay in business. So I left that to join another digital agency. And I stayed there until I was recruited by former friends from the second agency to come join them at another agency. So it was sort of four agencies in a row. There was a lot of movement, I think, in the category initially. And then some amazing, very bright, 
friends who I had met along the way had started a company that was essentially Twitter, but too early. They had been friends at Harvard undergrad, and they had this like genius idea to set up a service to allow mm. people to send messages across devices with a real emphasis on early texting on mobile phones. So back when the company launched, there was no way for you to text if you were on Verizon to someone on Sprint. You couldn't text across carriers. So this was a platform to enable texting across carriers that also had a web interface and a interactive voice response interface, an IVR interface. So suddenly you could talk across different channels yeah. seamlessly, one-to-one or one-to-many. Again, now this seems like, well, of course you can do that. But back then it was... Yeah. It was so like, what happened? You said they were too early? It was just too early. Let's see. I joined that company in 2000. It was before iPhones. Texty was still really tedious on phones. Like if you wanted to type the letter C, you had to hit the one key three times. And it was a, a small company, venture-backed, did a couple rounds of funding. And then all this stuff happened right around 9-11. Our investors decided they wanted to change out the CEO. So they brought in someone new who literally at one point said, I just don't even know how people would ever type on their mobile phone. And we were like, well, that's our whole... Famous last words. That's the whole business. And we think it's true. It's just the hardware needs to catch up with where the software and user behavior is going. So he came in with this whole, like, I don't even know. Like, he'd sort of squint through his glasses and look at his phone and be like, I don't really even <laughs> think this is a thing. We're like, no, 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 this is a thing. And then our offices were in downtown New York City. 9-11 happened. So all kinds of stuff and business and interest just evaporated. It just was a really complicated time. There was some fallout from just the dot-com fallout in general. And I think at one point, years later the company got recognition for really paving the path for what Twitter became today, but it was before its time. There are examples in technology of that type of thing. There's a company called General Magic, and actually a really interesting documentary about them. And many of the people in General Magic ended up becoming developers of the iPhone later and all kinds of other things, and it failed completely. And they were too far ahead, and they didn't execute well. That was also around the time of the Newton you remember, I think yeah. was, that may have been the Newton. Apple's attempt to do something that, yeah, uh, that eventually became, I think Palm Pilot came out after that, that ended up working. In any event, there's a lot of examples like this. And I always wonder, is it necessary to have these types of failures to get to the success? And, you know, sometimes that's true. Oh, I would say so. Yeah. Failure is the key to success. You can't go out thinking that everything you're going to do is going to be flawless and amazing and game changing. Yeah, as long as you're learning from it, right? It's not automatic. That's what I've seen. You have to work at it. You have to have some humility. And yes. you have to have some courage, too, I think. Because to learn from it means not hiding it, not sweeping it under a rug, but acknowledging it. Oh, it yeah. It takes a little bit of courage. That is a huge thing for me. Whenever people are like, well, what advice would you give someone who's sort of making their career and trying to move up the ladder? And it is... You know, coming back to that whole idea of imposter syndrome and sort of faking it till you make it and trying to sort of look like you're doing the right thing. I'm like, always admit when something's going wrong or not as expected or you made a mistake or you don't know something. This just like be as forthcoming as you can. If you are trying to act 
like everything is totally under control and it's all good and you try to cover things up or wait until it's a crisis. Like, ugh, no, it's like, it's way better to just be like, I don't know what's going on or I sense something sort of going awry here. This is just not adding up. Can someone please help me figure this out? That's the way better way to prevent crisis versus setting yourself up for crisis intervention, which could be a yeah. lot more uncomfortable. So you mentioned 9-11 and we started our conversation with operating a travel company, running a travel company in the <laughs> yeah. pandemic. So we're going to get back to where we started. I think. Oh, okay. How, um, I mean, you have very different role, a different stage of career, obviously for 9-11 to being the CEO of a company, but have you drawn some parallels? Are there parallels between what it's like to, well, you're living in New York, maybe that's more relevant 9-11, although so many restaurants closed, so much of New York fell you know, New York paid as big a price as any part of the country did, especially in the early days of the pandemic, but more generally around what's similar or if it is at all similar. And then back to this issue of how you run a company in the middle of a once in a century, hopefully only once in a century pandemic. There are huge differences, but there also are some interesting similarities. One of the biggest things after 9-11 was sort of this forced rebirth of particularly downtown New York City. I actually, I wasn't living in the financial district during 9-11. I was working down there, but a couple years prior, I had actually lived in the financial district. It was sort of this like great uncharted territory. Nobody lived down there. It was super weird on weekends. It was dead, quiet, no cars, nothing. Nobody hung out in the financial (laughs) district. In New York City, if you wanted to get a pizza delivered you had to call Domino's, which was like sacrilege in New York City. You don't, and, yeah. you don't, you don't eat Domino's in New York City. So after 9-11, yes, it was like a long slog, but there was all this effort to seize the opportunity of reinventing a whole part of New York City. And a lot of key New York City personalities took on that charge and, and transformed it. It's like unrecognizable versus what it was back then. And I think in the wake of the pandemic, some of that rebirth is happening. In cities, there's a lot, and in New York City, I live in New York City now, there's a lot of analysis of how should outdoor dining stay? We've Mm -hmm. never had an outdoor dining culture in New York City. It's highly regulated, highly prohibited. In some aspects, it's gotten a little bit out of control, but it's also made certain neighborhoods this incredibly vibrant, different environment that we just didn't have. And then on the hotel front, a lot of hotels put openings on hold or retooled their concepts or reconfigured how they would greet customers or enable check-in or provide services to people while they were staying. And the upside to that is that a lot of people are thinking more digitally, more remote. How do you automate things Hmm. or provide better service by automating some of the tedious things? So there's a lot of rethinking going on and retooling of just how do we make stuff better, more seamless, more streamlined that can only accelerate at the speed it is because of these kind of extreme circumstances. But on the travel demand front, oh, this is like this long, drawn out, twisty, curvy road back to something in the realm of normal. was a very specific moment with a very specific cause or impetus. And I think people could see the path back to normalcy. This is a very unclear 
path and normal is not going to be as familiar as it was post 9-11. What do you think will be noticeable for average people, for customers, that will be different as we move forward? The basic things that'll be different are things like, oh, you'll need to wear a mask or you'll want to wear a mask all over the place, which is very strange and still uncomfortable for just about everyone. You'll need to show medical records to go do ordinary things. It's interesting in my work because Michelin's this global company. So we get a lot of insight into how are things are operating in Paris or in the headquarters that are more in the south of France versus our office in Singapore versus our office here in New York or Michelin's North American headquarters are down in Greenville in the south. And we have just different protocols and different rules just on who can be in the office, what is the behavior that's expected in the office, what are the travel policies. So there's zero consistency. And that's because there's such different cultures that people are operating in. In New York, we have a requirement that if you want to be in the office, you have to have your vaccination records on file. And in Greenville, I don't think they can even fathom making such a requirement. It's just a very different culture. So politics and culture are just sort of like overriding science and safety. And it's sort of a weird time. Yeah. So is travel going to come back? We're going to see the same level of business and then continuing growth. I don't know when exactly, but soon. Yeah. Travel in a lot of ways is back. It's definitely not back to the volume that it was for business travel in particular over the summer. There was, in some ways, more leisure travel than historically. There was a lot of pent-up demand. I think people were really waiting out in in the late winter and spring and making plans for, well, when I can travel, I'm definitely going to. There are all kinds of signs that people are making plans to travel again in the next year, in the next two years. It's interesting to watch which destinations have increased visits versus normal times. Like the volume of travel that we've facilitated to places like Miami and Palm Springs has surpassed historical averages. So it's just people are choosing to go to different places or go at different times of year than are normal. But travel is a force for good. It like gets you out of your routines. It exposes you to different cultures and different experiences. And I think people have reevaluated what's important for them around travel, which I think is what makes our service really even more viable than historically. People are much more interested in making sure they have an incredible travel experience that it's worth their time and money, that if Mm -hmm. they're going to have to like go through all these extra hurdles of getting tested or showing proof of vaccination or doing all the research to make sure that you can even go out when you get to the place that you're going to, that they want to not just book a room at the lowest price near the tourist destination. They actually want a great stay. Um, And tablet focuses on higher-end cool hotels that are not standard. And I wonder, you know, during COVID when people traveled, many people were afraid to be in hotels, maybe a little bit less afraid to have their own place, like an Airbnb or something. There's VRBO and others. I mean, that's a trend that's probably accelerated even independent of the pandemic. So I'm curious about how you think about that as a competitor and whether there's something you're doing within Tablet to deal with it in some way. Yeah, we definitely saw a real shift in where people were traveling away from metropolitan destinations and big hotels. And people were really gravitating towards 
smaller properties, properties that had bungalows or cottages or standalone units, villas, those were insanely high demand. It was actually really hard to book a place that had your own little private bungalow, especially if it came with its own private infinity pool. So that is continuing. And I think it's great. There are a lot of hotels or hotel operators that are now really rolling out more and more of these like bungalow type Mm -hmm. campuses. In late July, I stayed at this incredible new place called Hutton Brickyards, which is up on the Hudson River, just north of Kingston, New York. And it's a whole campus with standalone, modern, just impeccably styled bungalows that have views out to the Hudson River, an outdoor dining pavilion, and access to the Empire State Trail, which is a network of trails that take you from New York City all the way up to Albany and up into Canada, I think. So I think the biggest thing is that a lot of people got maybe their first taste of Airbnb through the pandemic. And yeah, we were definitely envious of their numbers. It was a great way for people to escape these dense urban areas where they just couldn't operate normally. But a lot of the concern around an Airbnb is that you're at the mercy of an individual property owner and hoping that they're adhering to the protocols and safety regulations that are in place for your destination. If you're staying at a hotel, especially a hotel that's been selected by Tablet, There's no question that it has the right safety protocols, the right security measures in place. You can trust that you're going to be taken care of, whereas an Airbnb, and I've stated plenty of Airbnbs, but when you stay at an Airbnb, you're taking a leap of faith that you just would never need to take if you're staying at a legitimate hotel. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. One other question about tablet business, and then we'll wrap up. So when I talk to a few other CEOs of smaller to mid-sized companies during the pandemic that really got hit, like, for example, a craft beer manufacturer, you, yeah. you know, the bars are closed. It's How do you keep going? And what do you do? And of course, the revenue takes a giant hit. But one of the things that I, it's not exactly everyone telling me the same thing, but one of the patterns is that because you can't do some of your regular business, you have a chance to do other types of things. In other words, every company has plans and projects. This particular company had a couple of new brands they wanted to roll out and they wanted to retool some of the marketing. And they had a long-term plan to do this. It would take a couple of years to do it. And they decided to go all in with their staff to try to accelerate that. And they ended up going at a much, much, much faster pace than they ever could have and would have otherwise. And one of the lessons that comes out of that is, while nobody wanted a pandemic to teach a company how to be more nimble and how to work faster, you want to keep some of those same cultural norms as we get out of this, because those are actually competitive advantages to be able to move quick and get rid of bureaucracy and kind of have that edge of your seat culture. So the question for you is whether you also have seen or have tried to accelerate various activities or any activities, and what, if anything, might be a silver lining in terms of how the business is run based on what's been going on. Biggest things that we did from a sort of reallocation of resources was that we went all in on two big initiatives. The first was the development and launch of this Global Michelin Guide app that I mentioned at the beginning of the call. So mm-hmm. we had before the idea to Michelin at the end of 2019, we had a pretty incredible proof of concept that we had deployed through the tablet iOS app. And we, very early 2020, got the green light to go ahead and build this global iOS app. So 
that team just went into overdrive. So that could launch in October of 2020. I don't think we would have been able to build it and launch it that quickly if we hadn't had the ability to focus on new work versus maintenance of current work or maintenance of current client issues. And then the other piece of it was we had been leading up to this big convergence of the Michelin Guide historical hotel selection, which was a mix of great hotels, but also convenience hotels with tablets selection and tablets more elevated standards around hotels. And so that was like another fast tracking component fueled by some technology integration so that we were able to essentially onboard hotels much faster than we had been able to historically. So by the end of 2020, we had increased our hotel selection from about 3,000, 3,500 at the end of 2019 to 6,000. And most of that was expanding the footprint. So we had a really unquestioned selection in the most frequent destinations like LA, Tokyo, New York, London, Paris, but we didn't have quite as many options outside of the big cities. And that's like you mentioned, the Airbnb trend, pandemic trend, people were looking for more options outside of the cities. So to double the number of hotels in the selection and get them online and bookable within six, seven months was a pretty incredible feat that we would not have been able to do if we hadn't been heads down on that activity as well. We pride ourselves on being pretty resourceful, pretty dynamic, very results-oriented, very digital, very fluid. And I think we've just dialed that up. You know, we always use Slack and email and video calls to stay in touch with each other. We have a couple of people that aren't based in our New York headquarters. And so we already had a good infrastructure in place for everybody to connect remotely. And so that was actually pretty seamless. And we're still largely remote today. We still have our office, but it's been, to my relief, very, very, very effective for everybody mm-hmm. to be digitally connected. And in some ways, people feel more connected. They're having more regular interactions with people versus waiting for a meeting to mm-hmm. download. And I think we'll keep that. I don't know what our future office versus remote situation will look like, but it will definitely be a little bit different than what we had pre-pandemic. Yeah, which is a question for every company, really, to think about. Sometimes there's an industry norm that's stuck, like on Wall Street, they want people back in, much more so than, say, I think you mentioned Price Waterhouse back in the day. So PwC, 100% remote now which is amazing to think about doing that. So yeah, it's different for everyone and people kind of figure out what to do. For everyday people, it's actually nice to have that option, this kind of hybrid option, because there's lots of reasons why you want to be home sometimes. And there's sometimes reasons you want to be face-to-face. Yeah, some things are just easier and more fun and engaging and you can accomplish more in person and other Mm -hmm. things, there's no point, so... Finding the and, right you know, balance the is going to be personal key. lives as well with kids and other things that sometimes the reason to be out of the house, other times the reason to be in yeah. the house. Yep. <laughs> Both are true. So Lucy has been a great conversation. I have one last question I'd like to ask people. And I think you gave a version of an answer earlier when we talked briefly about failure. 
So I'm going to up the game and ask you to come up with a second bit of advice that's not necessarily about being upfront about when something's not going well so you can figure it out as opposed to kind of ignoring it or being slow. But the bit of advice that I like to ask is advice to yourself. Say when you were in Georgetown, just graduating from Georgetown, you had a front row seat at kind of a gigantic transformation in modern life through the internet in terms of the career. And I think the way you described it is it kind of, I use the word craft, how people craft careers and you definitely did. It's not like there was a game plan. In retrospect, it's perfect, but going forward, you don't know. But my question is really, if you could lean over to the 21-year-old, let's say, Lucy Lieberman, and say, there's one thing you want to know about life, about work, about anything. There's one thing you want to think about. It's one bit of advice I have for you. What would that be? Such a good question. The 21-year-old version of me was actually pretty cool. I admire the 21-year-old version. Mm, That's a great thing to be able to say. You know, she was starting to figure out her own thing and do what she thought was important and what gave her real motivation and you know was definitely a like go get out and kind of see the world and do your thing I think that the biggest thing that I grapple with is when I was growing up I was taught that business and capitalism were almost dirty that the path in life needed to be more noble and more about education and the well-being of society in some ways. And that business and attorneys and all this capitalistic like stuff was second rate, that it was self-serving. It was not even remotely noble. And that's actually been a really like weird thing to reckon with. Because Mm. like I said, I love art and science and math and these sort of like pure practices, these like fields of nobility. But I'm also like, oh, we live in a real world where economics is a reality. And business doesn't have to be about exploiting people and coercing people into giving you their business. I think it can be akin to providing a public good or providing services or goods at a fair price. So I guess I would (laughs) say to my 21-year-old self, like, you should pursue a career and interests that fascinate you. Don't feel like your parents or your family's set of priorities can't be questioned. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. like far too like profound and dark. Well, dark, no, it's profound. That's for sure. And everyone deals with it in some ways. And sometimes when not everybody deals with it. Some people never deal with it. And I've seen that as well. But yeah, you know. Is uh, it like just question, feel mm-hmm. free, like you should question mm-hmm. everything. Don't yeah. just... Yeah assume that everything that you've heard growing up is gospel. It's not. Go find your own set of criteria. Figure it out for yourself. Keep an open mind. And actually on the specific content of whether businesses or capitalism is bad, it could be, but lots of other things could be bad. Lots of things could be good too. And unsurprising for someone who is a business school professor, I don't think that it's immoral to make money. I think if that's your only purpose, then you're really not fulfilling your potential as an individual because there's a lot of things that you can do. And that uh, for-profit company can actually do a tremendous amount of good. Not all of them do, but it certainly can. And even little tablet, you create opportunities for people to have great experiences by travel in a way that would be hard for many people to figure it out. Or we would spend countless hours to find some of these hotels. And is it the most important thing in the world? No, but it adds value. It makes people feel good. That counts. So bring it home, Sid. That's it. Lucy Lieberman, what a treat. It's been a while since I've seen you and have you on the Sidcast. I'm delighted and I really enjoy our kind of wide ranging conversation and lots of insights and getting to know you a little bit as well. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.